Montel here and welcome to this edition of Free Thinking with Montel and I am so proud and happy to have the guest that I have on today who is a major general retired. He actually is started his career and three decades ago and spent a three decade career after graduating from West Point and I won't hold it against him because you know I'm a Naval Academy grad but he graduated from West Point went on to have an incredible career that really took him all the way to Iraq, where he was part of the training of Iraqi troops as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom. After retiring in 2006, he became an outspoken critic of the Iraq War and became an advisor to the group Vote Vets and is currently the director of Vet Voice Fund. Now, recently, he has made some pretty heavy criticism of the disparaging remarks that President Trump is alleged to have made to in a recent magazine where he called our troops being losers and suckers. Oh, my goodness. And it got a lot of attention. Please, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Free Thinking, Major General Paul Eaton. Thank you so much, Major General, for being here with us today, sir. Montel, absolutely privileged and flattered. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, sir. And you know what? Just so people can understand what it is you said, I want you all to take a look at this. You're no patriot. Let me tell you about a patriot. My father, was killed in Vietnam. He was shot down over a uh, Ho Chi Minh Trail section just outside of Vietnam and Laos. He delivered ordnance to cut the trail and cut supplies. And then he delivered close air support to Special Forces troops on the ground. And his airplane blew up. He went down in 1969, 13 January 1969. This dog tag was recovered at the crash site. My father was a patriot. Well-educated. He was a wise man. I got to tell you, sir, when I saw that, I literally, like I may do right now, you know, cried for about 10 or 15 minutes. When I heard the remarks from the president, I cried for 10 or 15 minutes. Because in one phrase, he devalued my life. And I think he's done the same for so many of us who have put a uniform on who really believe that when we took the oath of office, that he seems to not believe that I do solemnly swear and affirm that I'll support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. He has become the enemy that we need to defend ourselves against. And I was blown away. What, what, I, I know you must have felt the same way when you heard the remarks on a news station or something. What, what prompted you to do the video that you did? Until thank you very much. Uh, we're a military family. I, my father, uh, West Point graduate, career Air Force fighter pilot. Uh, my father-in-law, Naval Academy graduate and uh, career Marine, two wars. Uh, all our sons, my wife, we're all Army veterans. Actually, my sons are uh, still active duty, both. And uh, when that article went up on, uh, on that evening, Goldberg was uh, very straightforward. He's a good, good journalist. Uh, the Atlantic is a very good uh, outlet for, uh, for news. And I took it at face value. And subsequently, that article was validated by AP and by Fox News, no less. So I, yeah, it was about 8.30 my time. I went, uh, shaved, came back, fired up the, uh, the video system that I've got and uh, knocked that out and sent it out uh, on Twitter. Uh, I believe that 
civil-military relations today are as bad as I've ever seen it. I came on active duty in 1972, and uh, post-Vietnam War, uh, it, uh, it just needed to be said, and we got it out, and we got it out fast. Hey, you know, we, well, I came in a little bit right after you in 1974. I went on active duty in the Marine Corps first enlisted before I went to the academy. And I got to tell you, I, what, what has been the response from well, – let's break it down a little bit. I'm sure that you got a lot of supportive comments. I, I Probably 99% of them or 98% of them were supportive. But I know you had to have gotten about a 2% pushback, did you not? Montel, indeed. Uh, but it's remarkable that uh, most of the pushback has been on the veracity of Goldberg's article. And uh, uh, very little ad hominem attacks. So there were a couple. There, you know, you, you've got a fringe out there. Sure. But uh, it's notable that the, the pushback was on Goldberg's article's truth and the citing of anonymous sources. And, of course, uh, Jeff came back and said, look, uh, in these days, you don't get a newspaper article. You don't get an uh, Atlantic article unless you're willing to cite anonymous sources men and women who do not want the rug pulled out for them because they have spoken truth to power. And that's an absolute fact. I mean, if you speak out today, I'm sure that we'll get a lot of pushback for this interview that I'm doing today because people are going to say that I'm just disparaging the president. And, you know, I got to tell you, I jumped in, you know, back almost five years ago when, you know, the same man had the audacity to take a shot at, um, I'm sorry, who's passed away, Senator McCain. Um, you know, I had um, met with Senator McCain on multiple occasions over issues related to health and wellness, over issues related to veterans issues, and, um, you know, found him just to be one unbelievable patriot, uh, a person who really understood, you know, his role as a, not only in the military, but his role as a senator. And when I was, I literally, I think I was watching the interview live when um, Frank Luntz asked President Trump, or then Mr. Trump, or candidate Trump, his thoughts, and he took a shot at Senator McCain, I went off. I literally couldn't believe that he had the audacity to make the statement that he said that I like, you know, people who don't get caught, you know, and he said in that interview, and a lot of people don't understand this, and they say, well, you know, the Atlantic was lying. If you went back and looked at that interview itself, he called Senator McCain a loser before he said, I like people who don't get caught. So he used the term loser then. And I literally just, I, I think I was traveling. And I'm just like yourself, I couldn't contain myself. I had to say something about it. I spoke out very strongly about the fact that how dare he, you know, uh, make a statement, especially somebody who literally, you know, went after getting two deferments and didn't want to serve when we stepped up to the plate and served. And I, I had a question for you. When you look back, when you came in the service in 1972 and uh, you went to West Point, um, I think if you look at the numbers, I believe that back then in our Senate and our Congress combined, we were running at about a 75% rate of those who were serving in Senate and Congress had previously served in the military. It's 1972, 1974. It's about 74%. But now, when we look at our Senate and Congress today, we are down in the teens when it comes to a percentage of those who have served. You know, it's under 19%. And, you know, these are the people who have the audacity to 
send our young sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles off to die. What do you think about that? And that shift in the in the country, that's what's really throwing me because I think that's the reason why you got some pushback because these are people who never, people don't remember that less than 1% of this entire nation steps up to the plate to put on a uniform to defend the entire nation. Until indeed. 1% uh, providing for the constitutional rights and the safety of 99%. Now, uh, I will touch on uh, Senator John McCain, a hero of mine. When our POWs were coming back from Vietnam, I was in ranger school. And uh, one of the tactical officers, one of the trainers, uh, stepped up and said, uh, uh, Ranger Eaton, I understand that your father is possibly uh, coming back, uh, that he went missing over Laos uh, almost 40 years ago. And uh, that, uh, that man would give me uh, reports. And he gave me the report in particular when uh, Senator McCain came off that airplane. And uh, uh, very articulately played out. Years later, I uh, was working with the with the foundation that we've got uh, to to provide a platform for veterans to speak out on public policy, either domestic or foreign. And I was in Senator McCain's office looking for support for passing the New Start Treaty. Uh, he was very influential in getting that very good treaty done between the United States and Russia. So uh, I've got a very warm spot in my heart and I had the same reaction to the disparaging remarks that the president made uh, with respect to Senator McCain. Now, rolling forward and the density of veterans in Congress right now, uh, Vote Vets has the mission to uh, get veterans of the Iraq and Afghan wars elected to high office. And we have been very successful. We have just been able to marshal a lot of uh, U.S. support. A lot of the uh, uh, citizens of the United States contribute, which uh, to us, which is actually money that uh, that we use to get uh, men and women uh, elected to uh, to the Senate and to Congress. Uh, I cite uh, Senator Tammy Duckworth as uh, one of our bright shining stars. So our effort, and uh, I have to go back to John Soltz, our chairman, uh, who, when he came back as a tank platoon leader from the uh, Gulf War, second Gulf War, uh, he set out to, uh, to reinvent himself. And uh, what was he going to do to correct the fact that uh, we embarked upon a war that was a disaster uh, that uh, George W. Bush uh, chose to initiate? And we're still trying to figure out where this is going to end. But uh, Soltz, uh, who is a, a bit of a force of nature, a colonel in the uh, United States Army Reserve right now, uh, was instrumental in setting vote bets up. In fact, he was the he is the chairman, and uh, it is his efforts to correct what you pointed out as a uh, as a insufficient representation of the armed forces in our House of Representatives and in our Senate. So, you know, you, you just mentioned Senator Tammy Tuckworth. I'm in the process of trying to work something with her right now. I've been working with Senator Ernst on a proposal that a uh, project that I've been working on now for 10 years, which is uh, a project that literally is one of the only medical devices in the world that helps to alleviate some of the symptoms of traumatic brain injury. 
and neurodegenerative diseases. As a matter of fact, we've worked very hard at this for the last 10 years. The device has now received full FDA approval in Canada. We've been working with treating soldiers in Canada and treating people over 100, I think it's close to 200 people that we treated. There's going to be, by the end of the year, about 19 centers of excellence using this device that's an American-made device developed here at the University of Wisconsin that we had to get FDA approval in Canada for to treat our soldiers with, which is really absolutely ridiculous, I'm going to tell you. But I'm still working as hard as I can. And Senator Ernst and hopefully Senator Duckworth are going to get on board and help us do that. But when you think of when you, when you bring up Senator Duckworth's name, it takes me back to that Atlantic article. I, I am just, you know, I don't know if you know, I do a show every month, uh, a show, it's, it's every quarter of six episodes what we do. It's a show that's called Military Makeover. And also do a show that's called Military Makeover Operation Career. They both air on Lifetime. Military Makeover is like home improvement for vets. We pick a deserving veteran family and we literally make their home over from the ground up. And the entire community turns out, you know, people come out, volunteer to swing the hammers, paint. People, uh, businesses come out, they, you know, donate sod, they donate roofing, they donate flooring, they donate kitchens, they turn the homes into smart homes. They actually create areas that specifically for the veteran himself, uh, like a veteran cave. Um, and we've been doing this now. The show has been on the air for, I think, now seven years. Until and I've seen your show. <laughs> Oh, well done, you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Very well received. Um, and, you know, I work with, and, and as a matter of fact, I just interviewed two days ago uh, a veteran who's an uh, Army veteran who literally was, no, I'm sorry, Marine Corps veteran who was literally blown up uh, in a tank. Um, and during a training exercise back here at 29 Palms, where I had been stationed at when I was in the Marine Corps, uh, during a training exercise, uh, one of the uh, 120 uh, millimeter rounds went off uh, right as it went in the breach. It was a malfunction. Um, he was one of the four team members in the tank, uh, received burns over 50% of his body, um, has undergone over 50 surgeries to correct the damage. And I literally looked at him on Sunday and I said, how do you feel? I'm not making, I'm not asking you to make a political statement about the person who made it. I'm just asking you, how do you feel when you hear somebody say that you're a sucker or you were a loser? And I think of Tammy Duckworth, you know, Senator, Senator Duckworth, who's lost two legs, left them there behind in the battlefield. There's no sucker in that. There's no loser in that. And the comment that, well, people don't want to see them. I, I disagree. I believe that when you, you walk in the airport in America and you see a wounded veteran walk by, you watch 70% of the people stare. And they're not stare, staring because, oh, what happened to him? They're staring because their heart's pouring out to that person. So just wondering, how were you impacted by that statement that nobody wants to see our war bats? Montel. When I was 12 years old, my dad was on the uh, NATO air staff at Shape headquarters outside of Paris. And uh, whenever we took a subway ride in, in Paris, uh, there were seats reserved for war widows and uh, war mutilated. And uh, I spoke French at 
uh, at the time and translated for uh, for my family. And uh, they're not talking about World War II. They were talking about World War One, a terrible war. Whenever you would go to a French remembrance ceremony for World War One, you would have in the front of all the participants, you would have the men, and they were all men at that time, who were victims of gas, victims of concussion, victims of the terrible explosives that we were learning how to use in World War I uh, up front. And uh, for the President of the United States to, uh, to level such a, uh, a uh, slur on the men and women who have given absolutely uh, to the uh, future of this country, uh, you got to call them out. You have to. I, I can't see how, but what blows my mind, sir, and I don't know what you think about this, but I, I'm completely devastated that now, you know, a week after the dust settles on most of the cable news channels about the Atlantic article, it's almost like people don't care. It, I, I'm blown away by the lack of empathy for our veterans nationwide. I'm blown away at the fact that this is still not reverberating. Uh, I feel as if, like you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm not. I'm not an anti-Trumper. I, I'm not. I've been an independent in the last, you know, four elections, and I'll stay an independent because I believe that the issues are more important than the individual. But I'm blown away that it didn't seem to move the needle. I I I, I see some of the crowds that show up to support. President Trump, and I, I, I'm blown away by their vigor and, you know, what appears to be, you know, their sole, you know, Kool-Aid drinking attitude that uh, this guy is somehow telling them the truth. Does that not give you pause for a second and say, you know, you look at the last set of polls that came out in the last couple of days, the needle didn't swing. I thought the needle was going to swing 20%. The needle barely swung up. A percentage point. Does that not give you pause? Well, two parts, Montel. Uh, one, what you're doing right now is blowing on the embers to uh, re, uh, reignite the flame and to uh, keep it front and center of the public discourse in the United States right now about this election. Uh, we're going to keep the fire going on and vote vets, and uh, I admire what you're doing right now. Two, uh, when I see these uh, uh, performances of this president and uh, the men and women who are starry-eyed uh, and uh, at his, uh, his uh, group generation there, uh, they're a member of a cult. That's all I can do to, uh, to explain what I see American citizens. And they're not stupid. They're, they're captured in a cult. And uh, there is no reasoning with a cult member who is willing to support uh, a person, regardless of what that person has done, regardless of what that person has said. Uh, we keep seeing barriers broken down by Mr. Trump and uh, new, uh, new lows uh, that he achieves. And uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is 
work like this that uh, you've got to keep putting front and center. You've got to say it 17 times to make sure that everybody gets it, but you've got to work it. And uh, it's, uh, it's too bad that it's that way. You know, I know, you know, when you're in your four years at West Point, just like my four years at the Academy, you know, the entire time I was there, yes, of course, you're trying to, you know, pass your classes. And of course, you're trying to get your degree. And of course, you're trying to get your commission. But I think if there was one thing that was a focal point in me the entire time, having been prior enlisted, I achieved the rank of, you know, E4 before I entered the Academy. And I started down that path when I got that stripe down the side of my leg and I got the stripe the night before I literally transitioned and did a, you know, um, inter-service transfer from the Marine Corps to the Navy to enter the Academy. It was like July 2nd, I think. And right before my no, July 3rd, my birthday was July 3rd. So I got my, I, I literally got promoted to E4, had to discharge from the Navy, from the Marine Corps, had to re, you know, enlist in the Navy on July 5th, we entered the Academy. And for me, that four-year journey wasn't just about my education, though I tried my best to pay as close attention as I could on all the engineering things that I had to learn. But for me, that was four years of leadership training, where I literally understood that when I leave here, I will have the audacity to stick myself in front of other men and try to tell them what to do, giving them orders, orders that I wanted to understand really what the nature of leadership was. It's got to blow you away the paucity of leadership that we have in America today. And I hate to make it sound so political, but I look at the Republican Party right now and just think that's filled with zero leadership, especially when it comes to Congress and Senate. There's zero leadership. There's not one person who is an independent thinker, an independent thinker who has thought through anything like you just said, a cult personality that these people literally forgot that we elected them because we wanted them to be our leaders. What do you think about this whole idea? And, and, and you know, what do you think literally turned America into a bunch of lemmings rather than a group that followed leaders, just a bunch of idiots who I, I really, I, 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 this may sound terrible, but I see we live in a country where you know, we got a group of people who are ready to just jump off any cliff when they're told to do so. And I'm like, wait a minute. I at least remember back in the 70s and 80s where people would say, huh, I'm not jumping off that cliff. Now they go, well, yeah, I think the cliff looks pretty good. Uh, you know, what do we got? What, what led us down this path to a failure of leadership? And how do we get out of it? Well, first I'm going to uh, comment on the fact that a, uh, uh, a Marine enlisted man, a corporal, who uh, comes into uh, the Navy and then goes at the, uh, to the Naval Academy, you were the old man. Uh, from a perspective of the, uh, all your fellow classmates at the Naval Academy, uh, you were the guy with a ribbon or two on his uniform, and uh, you, uh, you had to be the source of uh, leadership within your squad, platoon, where the uh, youngsters would look to you as the uh, seasoned old guy who was going to help them through the experience of, uh, of the academy. We had similar men uh, like that in my uh, class at West Point. And uh, it was something that you gained very quickly in the military. It starts day one. And uh, 
Part of the problem that we've got right now is that uh, when we went to the all-volunteer force, when we went to a professional Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard, uh, we became a much smaller force, and uh, we had far fewer uh, men and women who had the experience that, uh, that you acquire very quickly in the military. The other thing that uh, I think has come along is the proliferation of social media. That's the, that's the biggest change that, that I understand from the days in the uh, early 70s to where we are right now. I, I go back to, uh, uh, who was it in uh, a, a notable pundit from Oklahoma, um, he said, I'm not a member of a uh, organized party. I'm a Democrat. Words to that effect. Mm. Uh, I believe in the Democratic Party that you still have uh, a thousand points of light, a thousand ideas. Uh, they may not be terrifically organized, uh, but they are a, uh, a, a constant uh, hot room of discussion. Whereas in the Republican Party, uh, they close ranks, they select their leaders, and whatever the leader tells them to do, they do. And we have seen, certainly, in the last uh, three and a half, four years, uh, with Mitch McConnell uh, and a handful of, uh, of folks who are simply not willing to challenge uh, Donald J. Trump because they know that they're going to have their uh, tail handed to them. So I, I see a particular paucity of leadership in the uh, GOP and an unwillingness to challenge because they're afraid. Fear is a dominant uh, emotion here. They are afraid of what Trump will do. So they've selected a, uh, a guy to be their point, and the Republican Party has become the Trump Party. And a lot of people, the never-Trumpers, uh, and we see in the Lincoln Project, we see these uh, opportunities for a nascent Republican Party to rebuild itself once we can move uh, Mr. Trump out of the limelight. Well, that's something I hope we get to do here in about, uh, I guess, it's 50 or 40 something days. You know, um, I think one of the issues that really has impacted this as much as it has is the fact that over the last 30, almost 40 years, Going back again to when you and I entered the service, 74, 74, 72, you know, we probably had only 10% of the entire Senate and House of Representatives who were millionaires. Now, all of a sudden, when you look at the last eight years in politics, and if you go and look right now at the bank accounts and median, you know, wealth of our Congress and Senate, it's above millionaire. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell all of a sudden jumped up into the $30 million plus bracket. Now, I don't know how that happened. I guess it might have had something to do with the hemp bill that he passed, but it just seems like to me that there's a lot of things going on where people are in this for self and self alone and forgot the fact that they raised their hand in the air and took an oath for country and constitution. I got to take a little break, pay some bills. We'll come back in just a minute. You are watching right now. An incredible opportunity for us to really sit back and talk to you know, someone I think who is a true leader in this country, and that is General Paul Eaton. And 
I'm going to take a break and we'll be back in just a second. Hey guys, again, thanks so much for tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. And today's guest is Major General Paul Eaton, retired, who is literally, you know, a, 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 I call you a, a nation's hero. And you should be considered a nation's hero like any other flag rank officer that served to support and defend our Constitution in the United States. And now, recently, sir, um, you know, I've heard about a group of flag rank officers, multi-service, multi-generational, who have gotten together to do a little bit more of what you're doing, and that is speak out and try to raise the attention of the, you know, the constituency in America to step up and make sure that they vote. Do you know, are you aware of this organization? Indeed, I am. I am, Monto. Good. Well, you know, I got to tell you, if you, if you ever have an opportunity to reach out to them, let them know that they got a home here. And I would love to have them on because I think, you know, one of the things that we've failed to do as a nation, and that is acknowledge the service of people like yourself. I, you know, I, I tune in and watch specials and documentaries, but, you know, I've yet to see a documentary on the generals. I've yet to see a documentary on the admirals. I've yet to see a documentary on those who have done so much for us. And I, I really want to start seeing those. And if I don't see them, then I'm going to do it myself right here on free thinking to give you guys an opportunity to speak out. Um, and I think you have a right to speak out. So um, what did you think about this last week? You know, here's the Woodward book, another, another, you know, revelatory, you know, book that, literally is coming out that now, of course, everybody from the president's standpoint, anybody who says anything negative about him is a liar, but that, that that's going to have endless, I think, revelations for at least the next 40 days leading up to election. What did you think of that book in general and the way it was coming? Uh, Montel, first I'd like to touch on uh, what you had uh, just commented upon uh, about the uh, retired military and, uh, and uh, post-military leadership opportunities. Uh, back in 2006, I wrote an op-ed critical of uh, Secretary Rumsfeld. And uh, a lot of people who had been worried about where the nation was going, particularly with the Iraq war, uh, when they saw the op-ed, woke up and said two things. One, uh, if Eaton is saying it, then uh, what I was thinking is probably on track. But the other thing that they said was uh, when senior leaders from the military retire, they should shut up and, uh, and uh, stay out of politics and stay out of the uh, limelight. Uh, retired military senior leaders, admirals and generals, uh, about 80% of them go into the military industrial complex. And uh, I think uh, that's probably uh, inappropriate uh, because it says it's not a fair fight when they go when they retire from chairman of the Joint Chiefs and leave uh, the Air Force as a four-star general and go to work as uh, a board member for Lockheed Martin for $500,000 a year, uh, I think that uh, that's probably not a good service to the nation. When you have a guy like Andrew Basevich, who retires uh, as a senior officer from the Army, and he becomes a professor at Boston University, I think that that's a... Uh, an excellent transfer of his wisdom and knowledge uh, gained over time. And, uh, and I applaud that. So uh, I have, that's I've been a supporter for now 20 years of a program that literally was proposed. Um, it's very, very interesting. Um, oh, Matt's probably 30 years ago. I was talking to a person and I wanted, it was Donald Ian McDonald 
who back um, in the Bush administration was uh, Secretary of Education and had proffered a program where why don't we literally allow senior members of the military to retire, but then add on a education core piece to your retirement, where when you retire, the military would go ahead and let you stay on active duty, if you will, for two more years or three more years, if they could assign you to various schools and universities around the country so that you could actually teach a course on leadership or teach a course on, you know, uh, the price America has to pay, but just so that you would be present in and among a generation, two generations behind you. And I've been a strong proponent of that. Uh, there's no reason why, you know, you have to retire and take your retirement check and go home, put your feet up and look at the TV. I think if there's a, if there's a way for me to keep you serving for three or four more years after you retire from active duty, why don't we do that? And I, I, I've wondered that, and continue to wonder that to the day. That is a superb program, Montel. And, you know, Larry Wilkerson is a, another example of that. Uh, John Van Alstein uh, teaches uh, National Security Affairs at Texas A&M. Uh, it's a, uh, it is a great opportunity, and it's a very easy transition for us to, to go from uniform service and uh, put on a coat and tie and or corduroys or whatever it is that uh, you're going to wear in the classroom these days. And uh, you, have, you have this opportunity to, uh, to talk to young men and women who really want to talk to you and find out what you've got. And uh, it turns out to uh, be quite a lot. Absolutely. It, it's a waste that we don't, you know, I mean, it's almost like a, uh, leaving a faucet running and letting the water run down the drain. We have, you know, vital information and, and, and vital knowledge that you have that could be shared and passed on and we just let it go, run out in the river. Yeah. There's another objective uh, for a man who's uh, uh, changed uh, and, you know, grown in so many different ways, Montel, there you go. It's, uh, there, there's another objective for you. Absolutely. So, I'm going to probably keep pushing that as hard as I possibly can. Though I, I you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've been... I try to always look at the glass half full rather than half empty. But in, in the last couple of weeks, I got to tell you, man, I, I become more and more jaded every single day when I realize there are some idiot who comes on television and, and tries to convince me that this man needs to stay in office. I, I, I'm blown away. I just can't even think how a person can think that way. Um, and, you know, let's just talk a little bit about the fact that, you know, it was a couple of weeks back, and this one threw me a little bit, and I wanted to get your opinion about it. A couple of weeks back, I think the, you know, the Military Times did a poll that you know, looked at across the board, you know, officer corps, analytic corps, and looked at the support for, General, for President Trump. And we've noticed that his support has waned across the board, but waned considerably less in the enlisted ranks than it has waned in the officer corps. And I wonder, you know, what, what do you think drives that? Well, as you know, the, the military is a conservative uh, organization. Now, as an institution, we are very, very highly regarded uh, whenever we do such surveys in the United States. So when the military speaks, people tend to, uh, tend to listen. Uh, I think the officer uh, split was 60-40 uh, uh, Democrat-Republican. 
so a, a dramatic shift for the officer corps in support of democratic candidates. Uh, for the enlisted ranks, uh, the, the biggest uh, difference between our, our enlisted ranks and our uh, officer corps is generally youth and education. Our enlisted men and women are brilliant and very well educated. But you join the Army at, uh, or Air Force or Navy, Marines, at the age of 17 sometimes, 18, typically 19. Uh, you're, that's very young in life. And uh, you, you enter the military with uh, a belief in the Constitution of the United States. You enter the military with a belief in our institutions, our political institutions, and in the Constitution of the United States. So we tend to be conservative. It is education that tends to unlock conservatism to progressive approach to, uh, to life. And just because you're a progressive doesn't mean that you're going to vote Democratic. All that means is that you have an expanded view of life. Education gives you a much broader spectrum to, uh, to analyze what's going on around you. So our young men and women are still carrying the, the, uh, the reason that they entered the military, and they understand the chain of command. Uh, interesting side note. One of uh, my younger son's A-team members, the Special Forces son, uh, two tours in Afghanistan, and uh, as a uh, A-team uh, leader, and uh, this uh, this one member of team was doing a uh, FaceTime with my son when I was visiting, and uh, I was called to uh, to get into the picture, and he said. It never occurred to me in the first couple of months that I was with your son, but I made the, eventually made the connection between Major General Eaton, commander of Fort Benning, and the infantry training that I received at the time, and my A-team leader, uh, Major Eaton, as, uh, as my A-team leader. But he said, I had to memorize the chain of command, and uh, the chain of command includes the President of the United States. So there is, by, by training, a, a expectation that the President of the United States is your commander-in-chief, regardless of his performance. And that, there's a tendency just to accept that, whereas age and education, and age and ed- education happens to those enlisted men and women in the force, you get educated, uh, as well as you know, you grow in to to a seasoned approach to life. So I would explain it that way. That's 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 my that's my take. If you had the crystal ball, you know, and and think ahead, I know that you know Vote Vets is running some really tough ads this cycle, and congratulations and thank you for doing so. Um, I think we need as many tough ads as we can possibly get out there to make sure people at least understand the truth and can, can, you know, weed through the chaff and get right to the wheat. Um, but if you had the crystal ball, what, what do you think uh, December looks like? So Montel, uh, there was something called the Transition Integrity Project. 
And uh, it was a four scenario war game that brought in a number of people, myself included, uh, Max Boot, uh, you know, for, for one. And we, we can only reveal the names of those who say it's okay to reveal their names who participated in this war game. And uh, Max Boot uh, played uh, Donald J. Trump. And uh, the four scenarios were resounding victory for Vice President Biden, resounding victory for President Trump, edged out or uh, marginal victory by Vice President Biden, and marginal victory for uh, the president. And we all had our roles to play. And the time between 3 November and 20 January, and in between there's a, uh, there's a date, I can't remember, but uh, where the states send their uh, electoral college uh, representatives. Uh, but that is gonna be a potentially fraught period. Of, of unknowns. You may have seen uh, Fareed Zakaria's program where uh, Republicans tend to want to vote in person, which means that election night, their votes are known. Whereas there's a significant portion of Democrats who are going to vote by mail, myself included. That's and right. those votes will be tabulated later on. So you're gonna have an output on election night, similar to what we've seen in the past, where the media may start calling the shots prematurely, or the individual politicians will start calling the shots prematurely. And uh, that's scary stuff. And uh, where you have a huge number of votes that are gonna be tallied after 3 November, military votes in particular. The military has voted by mail since 1864. Since the un- yeah. yes. and, and so we're, what I see is a, a new shift, and uh, I implore our news outlets to not jump the gun here and not uh, call shots too early because we're not going to call it election night anymore. I think we're going to call it election week or weeks. The, in this last, in the midterms that we just had in 2018, we didn't know uh, the output, the, the results in a number of congressional seats until weeks after. And uh, we may be in that situation. Uh, and I think everybody has just got to uh, sit on their hands, cease fire freeze and, and let our uh, state's uh, secretary of state uh, work the election process and believe in the election process. Do you feel, and I, I feel I have this, this I don't know, underlying burning sense, sense in me that, you know, we are a powder keg right now in the United States. I mean, I know that General Milley said that, you know, he will do everything in his power to ensure that, you know, there is a peaceful transition of power that the military is not involved in. But when you look at the last four years, we've got a guy who, his only respect for us in the military is the fact that because he is the commander in chief, when he walks in a room, military people stand up and stand at attention. I think it's the only thing that he really likes the most. He doesn't like, he doesn't care about us in any other way, shape or form. He just likes the fact when he walks in a room, there'll be four or five people who stand up and stand at attention. And that, that, 
that just really, you know, sends shivers up his spine and makes him feel like, oh, my goodness, I get to play with my Army men today. And if we've taken a look at this guy over the last four years, I mean, he seems to be playing with the military as if he's playing you know, at the foot of his bed with little green men, you know, and you know, he dropped the, you know, the mother of all bombs just so he could see what would happen. And we never use it again. And then, you know, he, he makes sure that he positions, you know, and though I know that it is part of our ongoing operations to control the sea lanes, I think that he's forced a little extra positioning of ships in a position in the South China Sea to literally just kind of push a little bit to see if he can, you know, get some sort of reaction out of China. And I think he's the same reason why he's pulling troops out of, you know, uh, Eastern Europe is so that he can just see what the Russians are going to do. I'm really afraid that during that three month or that two month period of time that this guy might, you know, remember as much as as we don't trust him with the words that come out of his mouth, I got to tell you, I don't trust the fact that he's got his finger that close to a button. Well, that is worrisome. And uh, it is a bit of the uh, tail wagging the dog that uh, that's going on right now. And uh, it won't be the first time that, uh, you know, the use of military force to drive election results uh, has been, has been played, but uh, I've never seen anyone more impetuous or less, uh, historically grounded than the current occupant of the White House. And uh, your fear is a, uh, a justified uh, fear and concern. I would expect that uh, we are going to have seasoned men uh, who are professionals in our government, not the political appointees. Uh, I, uh, we, we have some particularly weak political appointees uh, right now, uh, Sec Def uh, Esper is uh, is a real problem, and oh. uh, Pompeo is a real problem. So the two most important uh, uh, selected officials that uh, that we've got are a uh, a drama. But under each of those men is a host of very seasoned men and women who will do what they can to make sure that the rudder is in seasoned hands and not in the hands of the impetuous, live-for-the-moment kind of people or those who support them. Wow. Well, let's just hope that those seasoned men and women have an opportunity to, to, to constrain this guy a little bit. And I, I tell you, when you look at the way he's dealing with you know, the social unrest in America is dealing with the other issues that are going on in America, looking at the way he's dealing with COVID. And that's a question I have for you, too. You know, by example, and I've not heard a lot in the news media, but you would think that our military would be a festering cauldron for COVID. And yet, I don't believe that the numbers are higher on military bases or higher in military units or higher on ships than it is in the general public. I believe it's probably a little bit less because you haven't heard anything about it. Why don't we use the examples that our military seems to be, you know, presenting as an example for our society? Until I just watched, uh, I, 
I like Army football. You know, West Point graduate, uh, why would I not? And uh, especially since we at West Point have uh, finally had a couple of victories uh, over the Naval Academy team, which is a uh, particularly, I mean, we've got two great coaches, two great teams. I'm looking forward to, uh, to Army Navy. Uh, uh, watching West Point's operation, the, the superintendent at, uh, at West Point right now and the Commandant of Cadets are doing a brilliant job because said over the loudspeaker system at uh, the last ball game I watched, West Point doesn't have any COVID cases right now. And it's a function of, uh, of uh, a very thoughtful execution of the education program, the sports program, and uh, the discipline of the cadets to, uh, to make that happen. The other service academies, I think, are, are very similar. So it's a, it's a function of, uh, of discipline. Now, uh, a few months ago, when we were definitely on a bad path uh, nationally, uh, I penned an op-ed that was not picked up, but it was basically, we have gone down a path so far right now in a bad direction that it is time to bring in the military. The military is excess capacity on order to solve a problem. Had we used the military very quickly in Katrina, we would have saved a lot of lives. And just a day's drive away, we had the third U.S. Corps, partially committed to Iraq, but with a substantial number of men and women, vehicles, medical support, lift support, helicopters, trucks. It, the military is there as a means of last resort to help solve a domestic problem. And uh, Forces Command is a outfit of 750,000 uh, active uh, reserve and uh, National Guard available to do the nation's bidding. 55 governors are 50 states and are five territories. Put a bill on the table. This is what I need from you. And Forces Command will provide what they need. And uh, it's a, that is an option available to us. Uh, it's still an option available to us to, uh, to bring the military capacity in to help solve an attack on this country by COVID-19. Well, you know, I, I think that we're going to hit that point where we're going to have to reach out for as much help as we possibly can. I've been literally involved in a couple of initiatives to uh, see if we can help mitigate some of the spread. I'm working with a company that has a, you know, an incredible surface uh, protectant and an incredible hand sanitizer. The surface protectant lasts for three weeks to six weeks. It only has to be applied one time. And, uh, every three to six weeks, depending on traffic flow. And then we have a hand sanitizer that um, literally is prophylactic in a sense because it works for up to eight hours. Not only does it kill what you've already touched, but it actually protects against any pathogens and virus and bacteria for up to eight hours. And I'm also, you know, working on some initiatives to help, you know, speed up testing and trying to get that information. And I think that, you know, initiatives like this, if they were, you know, first – you know, introduced to the military, the military finds viability. And, you know, that's the one thing about, um, you know, the military being able to, to test things or pilot things that, 
you know, you have disciplined individuals who understand how to pilot a program. You know what I mean? They can, they, and they will follow the orders to do it to the best of their ability. And then it's something that can literally be then, you know, translated into the civilian community. So, you know, I'm working on a lot of initiatives like that to see if I can help, you know, do whatever I can to help protect us all. I can't say thank you enough, sir, for being a part of today's free thinking uh, podcast. Um, I know that there are people around the country that are going to enjoy this more than ever. Before we go, I want you to talk a little bit about um, vote vets so that people understand where they can go if they want to, if you want help or what they can do. Talk a little bit about vote vets for us. Certainly. So vote vets were a small flat organization that, uh, uh, as, as they say, punch way above our weight. Uh, we've got some of the finest men and women, uh, smart, they're fast. And, uh, uh, John Soltz likes to say, uh, speed kills. That's a armor officer's, uh, approach to life. Uh, if you live in a tank, you got to be fast. Uh, so we, we tend to solve problems very quickly. And our main effort is to get uh, uh, great men and women who have uh, fought in the Iraq and Afghan wars elected to high office. We do that very well. And uh, that's, uh, that's our task. Uh, the fact that we're in the election season at the national level right now is also a uh, prime focus. And thank you for mentioning uh, our ads. Those, those ads turn so fast. While I was doing that, uh, uh, that uh, video where I was incensed about, uh, in, in fact, my father being called a, a sucker and a loser, uh, while I was doing that, we had a gold star mom who works with us put together another advertisement and uh, that happened in about three or four hours, and we had that out very quickly the next day. We were not, uh, as some accused us of being in, uh, in sync with the Atlantic magazine, that was an independent reaction on the part of Vote Vets. Mm, wow, okay. All right, so if people want to find out more information about Vote Vets, where do they go? VoteVets.com? Roger. Okay. And then also tell me a little bit about the Vet Voice Fund. So... That Voice provides a uh, platform for our some 700,000 members, uh, veterans and family members, to influence policy, both domestic and foreign. Uh, we were very aggressive in the, uh, uh, getting the JCPOA, the, the Iran agreement, uh, and uh, we, we actually had the invitation and met with President Obama uh, when we got that, uh, that done. Uh, and we work a lot with public lands, public lands maintenance, uh, acquisition of greater public lands, turn them into parks, uh, the Land Water Conservation Fund. We were instrumental in getting that uh, uh, rendered permanent and uh, to get it fully funded. So it's a, it's a platform to influence policy outcomes. Wow, that's great. And people want more information about that? Where do they go? That Voice Fund? That Voice, Roger. Okay. All right. Good to go. Well, thank you so much, sir, for being a part of Free Thinking today. Um, and you know you always have a home here wherever you want. And if, if you in conversations with some of the other flag rank officers, let them know that I would love an opportunity to talk to them and make sure that we get an opportunity to share their leadership and their thoughts with the nation. Okay. And um, I want you to stay safe, stay well. And thank you for your service and your family service, sir. And Montel, I thank you also. You're a man who has... Uh, uh, made many transitions in life. Uh, you have, 
you have uh, reinvented yourself uh, several times, and I look forward to the future with you. Thank you so much, sir. You'll be well, and make sure you keep tuning in to Free Thinking with Montel. Thank you. Roger. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you.